Tonight we have before us Matthew chapter 9, and it's another exciting chapter with the emphasis more upon what Jesus did than upon what he taught. We came recently from a section in the Gospel of Matthew where the emphasis was very much on what Jesus taught. That was that section, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount. But as we saw the last time we were together, Matthew chapter 8 really emphasizes what Jesus did, and now Matthew chapter 9 will do the same thing. And so when we left chapter 8, Jesus had just had this very dramatic miracle of delivering the two demon-possessed men that uh, haunted the tombs of the Gadarene area, and he cast out the demons, and they went into a herd of swine or pigs, and the pigs were destroyed as they ran off some kind of cliff and down an embankment, and they all perished. And then the uh, entire community there, the city, the town, whatever you would call it, they all came out in unity to speak to Jesus, but it wasn't a good kind of prayer meeting. It was instead asking Jesus to leave. And so Jesus left their area, And now we come to chapter 9, verse 1, where it says, So he got into a boat, crossed over, again, this is the Sea of Galilee, and came to his own city. Now, let me just remind you there, when it says his own city, it's speaking of the town or the village or the city of Capernaum. This is right there on the shores of the uh, Sea of Galilee, and that was his own city. This has already been explained to us in Matthew chapter 4, verse 13, where it says that's where Jesus made his home in the town of Capernaum. So, verse 2, And behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven you. Now, you you can just sort of picture this situation in your mind, and you think of uh, some men carrying a paralytic man to Jesus and the friends are very much full of faith and they bring the paralyzed friend uh, to Jesus for healing and Jesus pronounces instead of saying uh, I'll heal you of your sickness he says I'll heal you of your sin I'll give you forgiveness you can just imagine the feelings on behalf of the friends who had gone to quite a lot of trouble now again I want to emphasize this is another example in the gospel of Matthew where Matthew gives us a very bare story. He does not include a lot of the details that Mark and Luke uh, give to us. And Mark and Luke both tell us something very fascinating about this healing. This is the healing that happened when Jesus was teaching in a home or in a place in Capernaum, and the friends of the man took apart the tiles of the roof and lowered their paralyzed friend down, you know, from ropes on a little stretcher, whatever it would be, on a little bed, and lowered him right down in front of Jesus, where Jesus was teaching. It was a very dramatic interruption to the teaching of Jesus. You can just imagine that at some Sunday service there, there the pastor, and all of a sudden uh, some men create a hole in the roof. You know, there they're chopping with axes and taking things away, and then they lower a man down, you know, through a system of pulleys or ropes or whatever, and they bring this paralyzed man right down there in front of the preacher and say, well, do something about this man. Well, in the scene of great drama, Jesus didn't do what they expected him to do. What they expected him to do was heal the man's paralyzed condition. Now, again, this will be another example of Jesus' healing the sick and the diseased. And we should remind ourselves that the Messiah's role as a healer was clearly prophesied 
in passages such as Isaiah chapter 35, verses 5 and 6. Let me read that to you. It says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb sing. For the waters shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. This was prophesying of the ministry of the Messiah. And they were saying when the Messiah comes, he is going to give sight to the blind. He's going to give a hearing to the deaf. He's going to give a tongue to the dumb. And he's going to make the lame leap like a deer. So this is what I want you to understand. Is Jesus' miracles were not only a testimony to the fact that he was sent by God, but also, or maybe even especially, that he was the anticipated Messiah. But again, let's remind ourselves. Though the Jews were looking for a miracle-working Messiah, they weren't looking for a Messiah that did the kind of miracles that Jesus did. You see, Jesus' miracles were not primarily calculated for crowd effect. In other words, instead, they were primarily done to minister to the humble needs of humble people. I imagine that if you were to interview a Jewish person in Jesus' day who was waiting for the Messiah and was sick of the oppression of Rome, as most of them were, if you were to interview them and talk to them about the ministry of Jesus and the role of this Messiah, they would say, well, listen, it's all very good that this man Jesus has this miraculous power, but why doesn't he use it for something really worthwhile? You know, there's a lot of lame people. There's a lot of blind people. There's a lot of deaf people. And it's great that Jesus heals a bunch of them. That's fine. But we're still oppressed by the Romans. We're still waiting for our national political and military savior. Where is he? And Jesus deliberately chose miracles that would express the power of God, but in very compassionate and merciful ways. One other thing I want to say. Doesn't it seem to you as you read the Gospels that there are a lot of sick and diseased people in the land of Israel this time? I mean, just doesn't it feel like that? No, of course, this is true, right? I mean, especially in the ancient world, you could say there were sick and diseased people everywhere. But I want you to understand that the fact that there were so many sick and diseased people among the people of God was evidence of their unfaithfulness to the covenant of God. It was evidence of their low spiritual condition. Let me read to you from Exodus chapter 15, verse 26. It says, If you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, right? If you do all those things, this is what God says he will do to you. I will put none of these diseases on you which I have brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. In other words, God tied the physical health of Israel in a connection to their spiritual faithfulness. And the fact that there was so much sickness, so much illness and injury among the people of Israel was one evidence that they were very far from the covenant that God had established with them. So what happens here? Look again at verse 2. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. Now, did you notice this? It did not say that Jesus saw the faith of the paralytic, right? You can picture this man laying on some kind of cot or mattress or whatever it would be. Here he is laying on this thing. And it's not as if Jesus looks at that poor afflicted man and says, I see your faith. He looks at the faith of the friends 
who lowered him down through the roof, as Mark and Luke tell us. He's looking up at the roof, and he sees their faith. And by the way, shouldn't we say that their faith really was demonstrated? Because I'll tell you, as difficult as it was for them to lower that man down, it was going to be much harder for them to pull him back up through the roof. And they were counting on that man walking out of there instead of them having to pull him back up through the roof. Jesus saw the faith of the friends, not of the paralyzed man himself. He could tell that they had the faith to bring him to Jesus. And we also can assume that the paralyzed man himself had little faith. It's almost like Jesus is, okay, I wanted to, let me look for some faith here. He looks at the paralyzed guy and goes, I'm not seeing much here. I don't have a lot to work with here. Ah, oh, but there's some faith up with the friends. And so what does Jesus do? He, he doesn't criticize the man for his low faith. Instead, he encourages him. He looks at the paralyzed man and he says, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. You, you see, it's as if he's just cheering him up. He's saying, okay, you know, you, you can have some reason for faith. Let me give you a reason for faith. First, I'm going to give you an affectionate title. I'm going to call you son. You know, if Jesus gave you such a dear title, that would encourage you, wouldn't it? And then he says, be of good cheer. Well, that's even more encouraging, right? And then he says, your sins are forgiven you. Now, this was great faith on behalf of the friends, but they weren't anticipating this. They only thought of bringing him to Jesus for the healing of his body. They certainly didn't think that Jesus was going to forgive his sins. You could understand it if the friends at that moment said, hey, Jesus, that's not what we brought him to you for. Jesus, you've made a mistake. We brought him to you so he could heal that he doesn't walk. Not that about a sin. But as you might expect, Jesus actually addressed the man's greater problem. As bad as it was for him to be paralyzed, it was much worse for him to be bound and lost in his sin. Now, please, it's not necessary to believe that this man was paralyzed as some direct result of his sin, right? You don't have to believe that at all. It's not as if there was some direct relationship between his paralyzed condition and some sin that he had committed in the past. That doesn't seem to be the point in when Jesus said, your sins are forgiven you. So this is what he says, very dramatic, right? Then verse 3, And at once some of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemes. We notice that they objected immediately, yet privately. Where did they say it? Verse 3 will tell you. They said it within themselves. They didn't vocally say it, but they all thought it together. You ever read the comic books or the comic pages in the newspaper, right? And they have the little thought balloon that goes above the person's head, right? They're not saying it, they're just thinking it. Well, the same thought balloon would have come above all the heads of the scribes at that moment, and they would have said, this man blasphemes. Now, by the way, the fact that Jesus knew what they were thinking, well, that, that's pretty dramatic, isn't it? But notice what they said. This man blasphemes. The scribes correctly understood that Jesus was claiming to do something that only God can do. When Jesus said, be of good cheer, son, your sins are forgiven you. They instantly said, well, only God can forgive sins. And you know what? They were absolutely correct. What they didn't realize 
was that God was in the flesh right there in their midst. And that obviously it's not blasphemy for God to consider himself God. And that's exactly what was happening. And so here they whisper among themselves or whisper in their own minds and they say this man blasphemies. By the way, in my Bible, I don't know exactly how it is in your Bible, but in my Bible, which is from the New King James Version, the word man is in italics. Do you know what that means? That means that man is not in the original text. More literally, what they actually thought within their own minds was, this, this blasphemes. In other words, they didn't even know what to call him in their hearts. This upstart, this nobody, this strange being, this, this guy, this, this outrageous man, he blasphemes. Now, we need to pause right here for a moment at verse 3. Because what we see here, before we even go on to verse 4, what we need to consider is that this is the first time we see opposition to Jesus from the religious leaders. The very first time. We have not yet run into it up to this point. Up to this point, Jesus has taught. Up to this point, Jesus has done miracles. But this is the first time that Jesus faces his opposition. And what I want you to notice is this is going to become a theme not only in this chapter. We're going to see it several times more in this chapter. But we are going to see it throughout the rest of the book of Matthew. So, verse 4. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise and walk? Now again, this should have been enough alone to prove his deity when Jesus demonstrated that he could read their evil hearts. When they thought a thought and Jesus said, I know what you're thinking. Why do you think such a thing? That should have immediately said, this man has a supernatural power that we're not in touch with. But then Jesus posed a question. Which is easier to say? Is it easier for me to say, I forgive you? Or is it easier for me to say, I heal you? Listen, in one sense, it's easier to say, forgive you, right? Because forgiveness is an invisible transaction. Nobody can see, you know, the purple cloud of forgiveness moving from one person to another, you know? It's not like something changes in a person immediately because they've been forgiven. It's not in their physical appearance, or sometimes people do have some kind of immediate change. Their, their countenance brightens, or they become happier, but that's not what I'm talking about. There's nothing obviously different in a person immediately when they've been forgiven. Nevertheless, if a person is healed, well, you can sell it right then, especially if the man's paralyzed, right? You could look at that man and say, I don't know exactly if he's been forgiven, but I know that he's been healed from his paralysis because he's up around running and jumping. He's definitely no longer healed. So in a sense, it's easier to say you're forgiven. It's harder to say you're healed. And Jesus is going to settle the controversy for them both. He's going to do both for them. And by the way, you might say that this whole thought is based on a passage from Psalm 103. 103 verse 3 says this, that God forgives all your iniquities. He heals all your diseases. First forgiveness, then healing. So what's Jesus going to do? Verses 6, 7, and 8. We read, But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. And then he said to the paralytic, Arise, 
Take up your bed and go to your house. And he arose and departed to his house. Now when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God who had given such power to men. Now Jesus answered his own question before the religious leaders ever did. He asked them a question, right? Which is easier? To say, I forgive you or I heal you. And before they could answer the questions, he said, I'll answer it for you. I'll do both. I'll forgive the man and then I will heal him. And he had already forgiven him. Now he just simply says, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. And the man was instantly healed. He arose and he departed to his house. He he proved that Jesus had the power to both forgive and to heal. And when the multitude saw it, you saw it right there, it says that they marveled and glorified God. The, the, The crowd properly gave God the glory for this miracle. Jesus wasn't trying to draw attention to himself, but to his Father in heaven. They glorified God. Well, a remarkable miracle, right? So, seemingly, in Matthew's narrative, Jesus leaves the scene of this remarkable miracle. And what does he do next? Verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he rose and followed him. Isn't that wonderful? This same man who wrote this gospel, this same man who gave us this record of Jesus' life, this is his own personal story of his own encounter with Jesus. Jesus is walking away from doing this amazing miracle, and he sees a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. There's this guy named Matthew. He's a Jewish man. Matthew's a Jewish name. He's taking notes, he's sitting at his table, he's collecting money, he's making arrangements, he's keeping the records, he's doing his job as a tax collector. Now, Mark chapter 2, verse 14 tells us that this man was also named Levi, son of Alphaeus. It was very common among the ancient Jews of this period to have two names that they might go by. There's nothing strange in this man being known as both Levi and Matthew. Now, what I find interesting about this is that Mark chapter 2 says that this man was Levi, the son of Alphaeus. Okay? Well, Matthew chapter 10, verse 3 mentions that there was another disciple who was the son of Alphaeus. And this is James, often called James the Less, to distinguish him from James, the brother of John, one of the sons of thunder, and one of the more prominent disciples. So it seems that not only was Matthew called, but also his brother James came and became a disciple among the twelve, because they were both sons of Alphaeus. Now, it's possible that they had different fathers, both with the same name, but we would just maybe naturally suppose that it wasn't unusual to have brother combinations there among the disciples and that Matthew and possibly or perhaps probably his brother James the Less, as he is properly called, became disciples of Jesus. But it all started here. Matthew sitting at the tax office. He doesn't come to Jesus. Jesus comes to him. He doesn't come to Jesus and say, oh, Jesus, I really want to follow you. We saw that last week, right? Didn't we see that last week where a man came to Jesus? Jesus, I'll follow you wherever I go, wherever you go, he says. And Jesus says, well, listen, you know, foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And the man went away. 
And then another man comes up to Jesus. And he goes, Jesus, I really want to follow you, but first I need to wait until my father dies, and then I'll be free to follow you. And what did Jesus say? He goes, listen, let the dead bury the dead. You've got to follow me right now. There were people who came up to Jesus and said, Jesus, Jesus, I want to follow you. Not Matthew. Matthew there is doing his work, collecting money, hitting the stamp, distributing the paper, collecting the money, counting it all, doing that, doing the business of a tax collector. Jesus comes to him, and Jesus said to him, follow me. Very interesting that Jesus did this for a tax collector, because tax collectors were not only known as notorious sinners in the days of Jesus, but they were also properly regarded as collaborators with the Roman government against their fellow Jews. Nobody liked the guy who sat at the tax office. Now, not many people like them today, but it's even worse back in Matthew's day. You see, the Jewish people rightly thought of those ancient tax collectors as traitors because they worked for the Roman government and they had the force of Roman soldiers behind them to make sure that people paid their taxes. They were the most visible Jewish collaborators with Rome. The Jewish people hated them as traitors, but it was worse than that. Not only were they considered traitors, they were also considered extortioners, thieves, because they were allowed to keep whatever they overcollected from the people that they collected taxes from. You know how you became a tax collector? You bid against other people for the right to collect taxes according to a contract. In other words, a Roman government, a Roman government official would say, okay, we need somebody to uh, collect the taxes for Capernaum and all the outlying areas. We need somebody to, who wants the privilege of doing that? And the guy says, well, I'll give you 100 talents to collect the taxes there. Another guy says, well, I'll give you 120 talents. And they have a bidding war, and whoever agrees to pay the most amount of money, he gets the contract for collecting the taxes in that area. Well, when the Romans awarded the contract to the highest bidder, Then the man would go out and collect taxes, pay the Romans what he had promised to pay them, but anything over that amount went right into his own pocket. Therefore, there was a lot of incentive for a tax collector to overcharge and to cheat in any way that he could. It was pure profit for him. It was hard to think of a profession that was more taking than that of a tax collector. And that's exactly what Matthew was. And so when a Jew entered the tax collecting business, he was regarded as an outcast from society. He could not be a judge or a witness in a court session. He was excommunicated from the synagogue. In the eyes of the community, he was a disgrace and his family was a disgrace. That's the kind of outcast that Matthew was. Couldn't go to synagogue. He had disgraced not only his community, but his whole family. Everybody hated him. What does Jesus do? Jesus comes up to this man and he says, follow me. Isn't that crazy? And the man did it. He arose and followed him. Now let me say one thing before I go on. The old King James uses a word here that I'm just going to mention. It may make no difference to you, but it sort of finally clarified it for me. These many years after reading and studying the Bible, I finally got an adequate explanation of this. I've heard of people described as publicans in the Bible. It's especially a word that the old King James... No, I didn't say republican as in a political party. No, 
publicans. Now, what's a publican? I don't really know what a publican is. Well, listen, the old King James Version uses the word publican for a tax collector. It takes it from the ancient word publicani. The publicani were the tax gatherers, and so they were called because they dealt with public money and public funds. So if you ever run across that word publican, it just means a tax collector, just like Matthew. So what did Jesus say? Follow me. When we understand how almost everybody hated tax collectors, it's remarkable to see how Jesus loved and called Matthew. And it proved to be a very well-placed love because Matthew responded to Jesus' invitation but by leaving his tax-collecting business and following Jesus and eventually writing this gospel. I mean, think of the equivalent. Jesus passes by a guy who's a combination drug dealer and terrorist. I mean, that's how it would be seen combination drug dealer and terrorist, and he sees him in the midst of doing his business. He's in the midst of doing a deal, right? Because Matthew's at the tax collector's table, in the midst of selling his drugs, in the midst of preparing a bomb to terrorize other people or something like that, something that was just uh, rejected by society. And Jesus walks up to him, you know what? I think you should follow me. And the guy says, okay, I'll do it. Puts down his drugs, puts down whatever equipment he has to commit terrorist acts, and he follows him. Now, Matthew left his tax collector's table behind, but he took one thing with him. He took with him his pen. You know, if you think about it, the other disciples were fishermen. They weren't primarily literary men, not primarily educated men so much. But but Matthew was a man. At least he knew how to write. He had to write all the time for his records. And isn't it interesting that God used that very skill to compose the very first collection that focused on the teaching ministry of Jesus? You know, in this way, You could say that Matthew made a greater sacrifice than some of the other disciples did. Peter, James, and John, they could very easily go back to their fishing business, right? And they did for at least a period of time. Matthew, once he turned his back on the tax collecting business, they would never have him in it again. By the way, one more thing before we go to verse 10. There is some archaeological evidence that they even taxed fish that were taken from the Sea of Galilee. So can you imagine a fisherman catching a bunch of fish, brings them in on shore, and there's Matthew, the tax collector, right there. Say, okay, how many fish do you have? Let's count them up. Okay, let's figure it out. Okay, you've got to pay this much taxes. Well, can't you imagine how often he had to deal with Peter, James, and John? He probably was their personal tax collector. And now they're going to be joined together in one great big happy family. I bet it made for some awkward introductions, though. Uh, you know, hi, uh, Peter, this is uh, Matthew. Oh, I know him. He's been stealing from me for many years. I know this man. Now, verse 10. Now what happened, as Jesus sat at the table in the house, that, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. Now, the context suggests to us that this was a gathering of Matthew's friends and former business associates. We might say that Jesus took advantage of Matthew's decision to also reach the people that Matthew knew, right? 
Well, Matthew, you want to come and follow me? Great. Hey, I bet you know a lot of really terrible people. Yeah, I do, Matthew would say. I know a lot of people who are tax collectors and rejects and sinners. Uh, And Jesus said, let's have a great big dinner and you invite all of your friends. You might say that Jesus used this as a way to do an outreach to Matthew's friends. It's interesting. Did you notice it there in verse 10? It says there that many uh, tax collectors and sinners came and sat down. One commentator named Bruce, he says that because of that word many, he estimates that this was not held in a private home, but that it was actually a public hall and it was a big affair, that there were many people, 20s, maybe even hundreds of people, too large for a room and house. This was a big deal. Jesus, let's put on a dinner for all of your friends, Matthew. And so what happened? Now, verse 11, but before we did, Remember what happened back at verse 3? What happened for the first time in the Gospel of Matthew back at verse 3? Jesus was attacked by the religious authorities, right? For the first time. What's going to happen again now, verse 11? And so it was, as Jesus sat at the table in the house, that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. Now verse 11. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, the answer to that question is simple, because Jesus is the friend of sinners. Can I read to you Romans chapter 5, verse 8? Just listen to this verse. Listen to the words carefully. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Isn't Jesus the friend of sinners? You know, sometimes we paint Jesus as being very angry with sinners. And it is true, there will come a day of judgment. There will come a day of reckoning. We do not deny that one bit. But please never forget that Jesus came to save sinners. And he loves sinners. And he came to bring salvation to them. Now, by the way, when it says sinners here in verse 11, the question of the Pharisees was, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Sinners, in the eyes of the Pharisees, were just the common people, right? Anybody who didn't live up to the pharisaical regulations of cleanliness and purity and the traditions and all of that, they were the sinners. Instead, a good rabbi like Jesus should only be hanging out with the holy people, the people just like the Pharisees. So what did Jesus do? Look at verse 12. But when Jesus heard that, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You know, this was the principle that the criticizing Pharisees did not understand. It's very simple, right? We'll just say it again. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Look, I know that today the doctor will tell you, well, even when you're healthy, you should go in and get a checkup every two years or something like that. Let's leave all that aside. And the basic thing that Jesus says, we understand perfectly what he means, right? Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Do you understand what the Pharisees were like? The Pharisees were like doctors who wanted to avoid all contact with sick people. That's what they were like. 
Well, we're doctors. We're the doctor Pharisees. Yes, we're the doctors. We're here to, you know, do medicine. Ah, there's a sick person around here. I might get sick from them. That was their attitude. Now, of course, the Pharisees wished that sick people would become healthy, but they would not risk becoming infected themselves. Now, listen, we're very fortunate that God calls sinners and not just saintly people. Jesus came to benefit those who understood their need for him. Remember that from the Beatitudes? Those who are sick are the poor in spirit of Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Yet the proud who see no need for Jesus, those are like the ones who are well and they benefit nothing from Jesus. Now, by the way, maybe you say, well, I feel a call to this. I feel a call to, to be like a physician of souls, a doctor to souls. And I want to go and I want to hang around sinners. I just don't want to be around holy people, but I want to be around sinners that I can be an influence upon them. If you feel that is what God wants you to do, and I believe that in some measure he absolutely does, you embrace that calling with all of your heart. But wait, make sure you don't get infected by them, right? I mean, the doctor doesn't do himself much good if he allows the sickness of his patients to overwhelm himself. I like what Spurgeon said about this. He said this about this very idea. He said, Lord, grant that if I am ever found in the company of sinners, it may be with the design of healing them, and may I never become myself infected with their disease. Now, if you feel this is your call, absolutely do it and do it with all your heart and say, here I am. I am here to minister to sick souls. And the reason why I say this is because I have heard this verse used as an excuse for compromise in my day. You know, people say, well, why do you go to such ungodly entertainments and do such strange, bizarre, ungodly things? Well, you know, I want to be where the sinners are at. Okay, great. Then be where the sinners are at. Just don't share in their sin. Now, Jesus reinforces the point even more in verse 13, where he says, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Jesus was quoting Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. In Hosea's day, God's people were still pretty good at bringing sacrifices, but they had forsaken mercy, and they abandoned mercy because they gave up the knowledge of God and the truth. God wanted hearts full of mercy and truth more than he wanted sacrifice. Do you understand what Jesus said to these guys? Jesus said this to the Pharisees. Pharisees who had absolutely committed their life to learning and fulfilling the law. They lived everything for the law of God. Do you understand what Jesus said to them there in verse 13? He said, why don't you guys go read your Bibles? I bet that made them so mad. Read our Bibles. We know the Bible. And Jesus said, no, you don't know your Bible. If you knew your Bible, then you'd have more of the heart of God, and I would see it more in your actions right here. So Jesus goes on here, verse 14. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Now, the ministry of John the Baptist was very strict in its character. And it had an emphasis on humble repentance, right? That was the whole character of John the Baptist's ministry. Repent! 
Get yourself right with God. The Messiah is coming. You've got to get ready for him. Stop messing around. Look at me. I wear rough clothes. I live out in the desert. I eat grasshoppers. You need to follow my seriousness and be seriously ready for the coming of the Messiah. And that was just the character of John the Baptist's ministry. Therefore, the disciples of John the Baptist imitated this. And they showed their own proper humility in light of their own sin and that of their people. They fasted a lot. Now the Pharisees also fasted. They they were known for fasting twice a week. But they did not do it for the same reason that John's disciples did. John's disciples fasted out of a spirit of humble repentance. The Pharisees fasted because they wanted to impress other people and themselves with their own spirituality. But apparently, the disciples of Jesus didn't fast. They didn't fast like the followers of John the Baptist. They didn't fast like the Pharisees. Why? Well, verse 15, Jesus is going to tell us. And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment, and the tear is made worse. Nor do they put new wine into old wineskins, or else the wineskins break. The wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Now, what Jesus is saying is that, listen, you disciples of John and the Pharisees, you guys live under one set of rules, one set of assumptions, especially you disciples of John. You operate under the assumption that the Messiah is coming. Jesus says, my disciples operate under the assumption that the Messiah is here. And so you see his logic? Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Now, it wasn't right for the disciples of Jesus to imitate the Pharisees in their hypocritical shows. But it also was not right for them to imitate John the Baptist in their disciples, in their ministry of humble preparation, because the Messiah was with them. So he says, no, no, no. It's appropriate that my disciples do not fast now. But did you see what he said? He said, but the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. There would come a day when fasting was appropriate for the followers of Jesus. But at the present time, when Jesus was among them, it was not that day. Now you have to admit, isn't there sort of a dark note in those words of Jesus? Isn't there sort of a a shadow when Jesus says, For the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. It was as if Jesus said, They are going to take me away. You've seen the first few hints of the opposition of the religious leaders against me. You mark my words. They will take me away because I threaten their system. So that was one illustration used, Jesus used, the illustration of the bridegroom being among them. The second one was of wineskins. He says, uh, nor do they put new wine into old wineskins or the wineskins will break. With this illustration of the wineskins, Jesus explained that he did not come to repair or reform the old institutions of Judaism. 
Jesus wasn't there to reform Judaism. He was there to bring a new covenant. The new covenant wasn't just going to improve the old. It was going to replace the old covenant and go beyond it. Therefore, he says, put the new wine into new wineskins and both are preserved. You know what Jesus was saying here? He's saying, listen, the present institutions of Judaism can't contain what I have to bring. I'm going to have to make a new institution. And he didn't call it here, but you know what that new institution was? It was the church. The church will be my new institution, my new wineskin that will bring together both Jew and Gentile into one new body that we'll call the church, bringing them together. And it just reinforces to us. Jesus came to introduce something new, not to patch up something old. That's what salvation is all about. Jesus is not just patching up the old, but bringing in something new. All right, now going on to verse 18. While he spoke these things to them, okay, so Jesus is teaching them this, while he spoke these things to him, behold, a ruler came and worshipped him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. So Jesus arose and followed him, and so did his disciples. I want you to notice something. This man worshipped him, right? And Jesus received the worship. Doesn't that tell you something very powerful about Jesus and his own recognition of his deity? What would a good man do if somebody came and worshipped him? He said, don't worship me, worship God alone. What would an angel do if a human being started worshiping? They said, don't worship me, worship God alone. We find that example a couple times in the book of Revelation, right? But listen, what does Jesus do when people come and worship him? He receives it. And the man worshiped Jesus in such humility because he had a great problem. His daughter had just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Now, this ruler thought that it was absolutely essential that Jesus personally come and touch the girl. Interesting, in the last chapter, we had a Roman centurion who wanted his servant to be healed, and the Roman centurion knew very well that Jesus didn't have to be there physically for the healing to take place, right? But apparently, this ruler of the synagogue has less faith than a Roman centurion. Isn't that remarkable? So Jesus says, okay, I'll go to your house. I'll go see your daughter. Verse 20. And suddenly, a woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years came from behind and touched the hem of his garment. For she said to herself, if only I may touch his garment, I shall be made well. But Jesus turned around, and when he saw her, he said, be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And the woman was made well from that hour. Now again, I want you to know just how absolutely amazing I find this to be. One thing amazing I find about this is how short Matthew makes this account. You go to Mark, you go to Luke, it's much longer. It fills in so many more vivid details. There's something in Matthew that says, I want to throw at you as many miracles, as many great teachings of Jesus as I can. I don't want to spend too much time on any one individual one. I want you to be impressed by the sheer number of them. And that's exactly what Matthew does for us in his gospel. 
So in Mark chapter 5 and in Luke chapter 8, we have a much fuller account of this miracle. But listen, Matthew's account is quite enough to show us the compassion of Jesus and to show us that his power was not magical. Jesus wasn't a wizard that you could come and get a healing by touching his garment. No, here you see the power of God responding to the faith of those people who seek him. You can picture it in your mind, right? Big crowd around Jesus. The woman sort of sneaks in behind Jesus, right? Doesn't want to face him. Doesn't want to be seen by any side. She reaches out and she touches the hem of his garment. Now, by the way, this describes for us the fringes or the tassels that would be on the prayer shawl of a Jewish man of that day. This was something that a Jewish man would wear, and what Jesus is wearing here, and what Matthew is describing for us, is the hem of this special garment. That garment was meant to identify a Jewish man as a Jewish man, as being a member of the chosen people. No matter where it was, it said, I'm Jewish. And it was also meant to say to him every day when he put it on and every night when he took it off, I am one of God's chosen people. I have a special calling to fulfill in my life. It was this special, if you want to call it a prayer cloth, a prayer gathering, whatever you want to call it, it was over him. That's what the woman touched, the very tassel or fringe of that particular covering or shawl that Jesus wore. Now one thing that I found very interesting in this Do you realize that this tells us that Jesus dressed like other people in his time? I just find that interesting. Jesus felt no need to distinguish himself by the clothes that he wore. Now, I don't say that as judgment call. There are some people who say, listen, I want to show that I'm different by the clothes that I wore. Okay, great, whatever. I just want you to know, Jesus didn't feel a need to do that. Jesus dressed like other people dressed in his day. Now, To the best of our knowledge, there was absolutely no promise or pattern that would tell us that the touching of the garment of Jesus would bring healing. Right? Who would think this? It seems that the woman believed this in a rather superstitious way. Yet even though her faith had elements of error and superstition, She believed in the healing power of Jesus and that garment provided a contact point of her faith. Listen, I could criticize this woman for a lot of things, but the bottom line is that she had some faith, imperfect as it was, and her faith was in Jesus. I mean, she seemed to think that you could just sort of take healing from Jesus. You could touch him and, whoa, I took it from him and he'll never miss it. That's apparently what she was thinking. Well, she reached out, she touched the hem of his garment, and what happened? And the woman was made well. Her faith, even though it was imperfect, it was enough to receive what Jesus wanted to give her, and she was healed from a 12-year-old disease. You can just imagine the sense of relief that this woman felt. However it was, she must have felt something happen within her physically, right? And something happened within her physically, she knew, I'm healed! Yes, now I can sneak away. Jesus will never know. The crowd will never know. The disciples will never know. And I'll be healed. And as she's sneaking away, what happens? 
But Jesus turned around, and when he saw her, he said, Why did you try to steal a healing from me, lady? He didn't say that, did he? He said, Be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well. This woman hoped that she might receive something from Jesus without drawing any attention to herself. Her problem was embarrassing, okay? And she didn't want to be embarrassed. So I'll sneak a blessing from Jesus. But Jesus insisted on making a public notice of her, and he did so for many good reasons. Do you know why? First of all, Jesus did it so that she would know that she was really healed. What did Jesus say to her? Your faith has made you well. Lady, you're really healed. Listen, I mean, that would be important for her to know. I would imagine that with her affliction, she had some good days and some bad days, right? And how wouldn't she just know, well, I guess I'm maybe just having a good day now. No, no, no. Jesus wanted her to know you are healed. But that wasn't all. He also wanted other people to know that she was healed. Let's face it, her problem, her ailment was private in nature. How would other people really know that she was healed? They would know because Jesus said that she was healed. Jesus also did it so that she would know why she was healed. Why was she healed? Because of faith. Did you see what Jesus said? Be of good cheer, daughter. Your touch has made you well. No, your faith has made you well. That's what healed her. Jesus did it so that she would not think that she stole a blessing from him. And after all, this took place seemingly in Capernaum, right? Jesus' hometown, or at least where he was living at the time. Jesus would be around there a lot. This woman would have occasion to see Jesus again. Every time she would see him, she would look away from him, thinking, oh, my heavens, I don't want Jesus to know that I'm the one that stole a blessing from him. I took something from him without his permission. No, 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 Jesus wanted her to know, no, it's fine, it's fine, I gladly heal you. Jesus also did it so that the ruler of the synagogue would see the power of Jesus at work and therefore have more faith himself for his daughter. And then finally, Jesus did it so that he could bless this woman in a very special way. Do you understand that Jesus gave this woman a title that he did not give to any other person in the entire New Testament? Nowhere else in the Gospels does Jesus call anybody else daughter the way that he calls this woman. That's why he did it, so that he could call her in a very special way. So, in the midst of all this interruption, Jesus healing the woman on the way to go give attention to the poor daughter of the ruler of the synagogue, now at verse 23, when Jesus came into the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the noisy crowd wailing, he said to them, make room for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. Now stop right there. I want you to understand. Don't you think it's interesting that this girl is dead and there's flute players and, and, and uh, singers or a noisy crowd wailing there? What's going on with it? Is this a concert or is this somebody just died? Well, the, the whole idea was in that day they had pretty strict traditions that whenever somebody died, you had to have certain customs of mourning. And these customs of mourning included professional musicians and professional mourners. You would hire professional mourners. I don't know how it would work. Somebody dies in the house, you 
call up on the phone, hello? Is this rent a mourner? You know, we need uh, five mourners out to our house. You know, my daughter just died. It would be something like that. And the people would come and they would actually be paid. And these would be hired by even the poorest families. By the way, isn't it sad? That back then, they reduced everything to a system. Even mourning. There was even a system for mourning. That's sad. So, anyway. Verse 23. When Jesus came into the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the noisy crowd wailing, he said to them, Make room for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. But when the crowd was put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose, and the report of this went out into all the land. Jesus endured the scorn from the crowd, and he raised the little girl to life. He wasn't going to let the criticism or the mocking of the crowd prevent him from doing God's will. Might I say something right here? We certainly don't have any reason to believe that Jesus raised every dead child that he ever encountered, right? Surely there were some dead children that Jesus did not raise from the dead. But Jesus did it here in a simple act of mercy and compassion for the grieving father. I want you to know, he did it more for the grieving father than for the little girl. The little girl was doing just fine, thank you. But no, no, no. He did it for the sake of the grieving father. I think on top of this, Jesus must have hated death. Whenever he saw death, I just imagine a holy indignation, a holy anger rising within Jesus saying, this isn't right. Sin and death have been stealing from humanity for all these many thousands of years. Through my ministry, I will put a stop to this. And he did. He conquered sin. He conquered death. And it's almost as if he's giving a preview of that final conquering of death right here in raising this little girl from the dead. All right, now verse 27. We kind of come towards the end of the chapter and some more accounts of healing. When Jesus departed from there, two blind men followed him, crying out and saying, Son of David, have mercy on us. And when he had come into the house, the blind men came to him. And Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, let it be to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, saying, See that no one knows it. But when they had departed, they spread the news about him in all that country. Now, I find it interesting, first of all, that verse 27 tells us that these two blind men followed Jesus. I don't imagine that it was easy for blind men to follow Jesus, right? They have to, where's he going now? Listening to every sound that might alert him to where Jesus is going. Where is he going? It wasn't easy for blind men to follow Jesus, but they did so to the very best of their ability. And when they got close enough to him, they started screaming, Son of David, have mercy on us. Now, two things. First of all, they used a very important title, Son of David. 
That was clearly a messianic title, and it's the first time that such a messianic title is put upon Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. Here, you have somebody very openly and very loudly proclaiming, Jesus, you are the Messiah, because Son of David was just that kind of title. Secondly, what did they ask for? They asked for mercy. That's what they wanted. They didn't come thinking that they deserve to be healed. No, they came saying, listen, we need your mercy, Jesus. Pour out your mercy upon us. And then what does Jesus do? Did you notice that? In verse 28, it says, when he had come into the house, the blind men came to him. It's almost as if Jesus did not want these guys out in the street shouting, Jesus, you're the Messiah. Jesus, you're the Messiah. It's almost, Let's keep this down right now. Don't forget, Jesus had a timing to fulfill in his ministry. There would come a time, I think very strategic in the fulfillment of prophecy and in the outworking of Jesus' life and plan, there would come a day when Jesus would officially present himself as Messiah the Prince unto Israel. We call that day Palm Sunday. And after that day, he would be rejected. And I think all this was in very specific fulfillment of prophecies from the book of Daniel. But Jesus had a timing for all of it. And he did not want messianic fever, Messiah fever, to get too hot until that time. And so here's two blind guys screaming in the street, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Messiah. Hey, come inside here. Let me talk to you inside. It says, verse 28, And when he had come into the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Isn't this wonderful? Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. Isn't that beautiful? What a great response of faith. Yes, Lord. So what did Jesus say? Verse 29. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, so let it be to you. You believe that I can heal you. You believe that I want to heal you. Therefore, be healed. You know, again, this is one of the great themes of the Gospel of Matthew as we're looking at it these many weeks. We saw back in chapter 8, the leper had great faith. He believed that Jesus was able to heal him even though leprosy was considered to be an impossible disease to heal, right? But the leper had faith. And then after the leper in Matthew chapter 8, we have the centurion who had such great faith that Jesus publicly praised it as being great faith. Such great faith that he had not found in all of Israel. Then in Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 23, you have another little thing of faith, but it's not good faith, it's little faith. The disciples in the boat didn't have much faith, right? And then the woman with the issue of blood that we just saw, she was healed and Jesus said, your faith has made you whole. Over and over again, we have this example coming to us very strong in the Gospel of Matthew. So in many ways, God says the same to men and women today, the same thing that Jesus said in verse 29, according to your faith, let it be so to you. There's so much that God intends for us to have by faith. Now look, this is a difficult thing to bring up. Because you think of people who are sick. You think of godly people, more godly than you or I, who live lives of pain, who live lives of difficulty. And don't you sometimes think, you know, maybe if they just had the faith, God would heal them. 
You can't always say that, can you? Listen, we cannot say that God intends to heal every person if they would only have faith. Oh, now we do believe that in an ultimate sense, right? In an ultimate sense, God has guaranteed healing for every believer, has he not? And we call that resurrection. That is God's ultimate healing for every believer. But on an individual day-to-day level, we don't know. We cannot say that every Christian person, every person of God, if they would just have faith, then God would heal them. Because you know what? Sometimes people are healed, sometimes they are not. But listen, can we not say this? Can we not say with some confidence that there are some people who could be healed if they only had faith? That is true. And listen, I don't know. I don't know if I have an answer for it. I I, I don't know. There's not, you know, a purple dot that comes upon the forehead of those who just need to have faith. You can't know it just from looking at a person. Maybe this is something that happens only in the transaction or the communication between the soul and God. But we say with confidence that God moves in response to faith. According to your faith, let it be so to you. We say, God, increase our faith. We should have the kind of faith that these two blind men had. You know, they had the faith to follow Jesus. That meant forsaking other paths, other directions, saying, we're going to follow Jesus and not anybody else. And by the way, it wasn't easy for them to follow Jesus, was it? They were blind. So they had the faith to follow Jesus. They also had the faith to cry out. They put words to their desire. That's faith, isn't it? If you have faith, you're going to cry out before God. They had faith to make some noise. They were not afraid of being embarrassed. If your greatest fear is being embarrassed, I don't think you have much faith. They had faith to identify Jesus as the son of David and to recognize him as the Messiah. And they had the faith to ask Jesus for mercy. They knew that they didn't deserve healing. They had faith to believe that Jesus was able to heal them. Might we say too, that they had the faith to say, Yes, Lord. I wonder if there's not some of us here tonight. God has spoken a promise to your heart. He's given it to you in His Word, perhaps. Perhaps He's just spoken it to you by the power of the Holy Spirit. God has given you a promise. And when you think of that promise, when you consider it, you find yourself saying, No, Lord, I don't think so. I don't think it can happen. It's too good to be true. It's too hard to come to pass. It's too much this. It's too much that. No, Lord, it sounds nice, but I don't think so. Can't you see that faith is saying to God, taking that promise of his and saying, Yes, Lord, yes. Yes, just as you've said, Lord. Lord, not as I will, but just as you've said, it's your promise. Yes, Lord. The faith of these blind men was very remarkable, except in one way. You want to know where their faith wasn't so remarkable? What did Jesus tell them there at verse 30? See that no one knows it, but when they had departed, they spread the news about him in all that country. Well, they had the faith to do a lot, but they didn't have the faith to obey him. They should have listened to Jesus. 
But don't you see that Jesus is trying to keep Messiah fever from getting too hot? Because he has a timing, and he doesn't want that timing upset. A couple more to the end of the chapter now, verse 32. And as they went out, behold, they brought to him a man, mute and demon-possessed. And when the demon was cast out, the mute spoke. And the multitudes marveled, saying, It was never seen like this in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the ruler of demons. Very interesting. You want to know what's interesting about this? You have to understand a little bit about the traditions of the ancient Jews and their um, exorcism ceremonies. The ancient Jews had many different ceremonies, many different traditions for casting demons out of people. The idea of casting demons out of people was very familiar to them. Now, I'm not saying they were successful. I'm just saying that they often sought to deal with this problem. And they had a formula. They had a plan. They had a tradition. And this was basically the formula. They said this, that in order to cast a demon out of somebody, you have to get that demon to tell you his name. Once you have that demon's name, you sort of have a handle on that demon, and you can use that handle to pull the demon out of the person. That was their thinking. Now, I'm not saying that's biblical. I'm not saying that Jesus ever did that. It's sort of interesting. I know we're getting on late, and I don't want to get too much on the sidelight. Remember when Jesus had that confrontation with the guy, and, and he said, well, tell me your name, and he said, my name is Legion. See, I, I think that that demon at that point gave Jesus a non-answer. Legion isn't a name. I think the demon was trying to intimidate Jesus. I think the demon was trying to say, we are as many as a Roman legion within this man, and you'll never defeat us. And when Jesus cast the demon out of that man, he didn't even use the name Legion. He just said, I don't need your name. Get out of him. Jesus did things in the way that he cast out demons to show I don't need these Jewish traditions and ceremonies. Now, if you think that in order to cast a demon out of somebody, you have to have that demon-possessed man tell you the name of the demon that inhabits him, then the smartest thing that a demon could do is make a man dumb, make him silent in his speech, right? Unable to speak. Because if the man can't speak, then you're never going to hear what the name of the demon is that inhabits him. And if you don't have his name, it's impossible to cast him out, right? At least in the thinking of these ancient Jewish ceremonies. And that's why everybody was so blown away. Oh my gosh, the demon made him mute. The demon made the man unable to speak. Well, nobody can cast that demon out. And Jesus just comes and Jesus casts him out, says a word, snaps his fingers, blinks his eye. I don't know what Jesus did. But he cast the demon out in a moment. Everybody was amazed. Because Jesus displayed that he didn't need to follow the ceremonies, to follow the traditions. By the way, these were not biblical ceremonies. These were not biblical traditions. These were tradition traditions. These were ceremony ceremonies. Not biblical in nature at all. Now, what was the reaction? Well, the multitudes marveled, saying... It was never seen like this in Israel, but the Pharisees said he cast out demons by the ruler of demons. Did I tell you about this increasing theme in the book of Matthew now? They reject him more and more, right? Starts as little. Now they're saying that Jesus is in league with the devil. Now, when Jesus hears spiritual leaders in Israel 
describe him as being in league with the devil, what does he do? Look here, starting at verse 35. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his Jesus goes out into the cities and the villages. He sees the depth of human need. And what does he do? He's moved with compassion. You know, most of what we have seen in Matthew chapters 8 and Matthew chapters 9, most of it has happened in the city of Capernaum. Not all of it, but most of it. What Matthew is trying to tell us here is that Jesus didn't do this just in Capernaum. He did it all over the place. But here he was in Capernaum. And they criticize him, don't they? You cast out demons by the ruler of demons. You're in league with Satan. And what did Jesus do? Oh, they're criticizing me. I can't believe the bad things they're saying about me. It just makes me so discouraged. I just want to stop. How can they say just terrible things about me? Did Jesus do any of that for a moment? No. He simply ignored the terrible and the unfair criticism, and he got about his father's business. By the way, Matthew used a very strong word in the ancient Greek language when he said, moved with compassion. It's the strongest word for pity and compassion that there was in the ancient Greek vocabulary. Because he looked at people, and as it says there in verse 36, he saw that they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Jesus was sad. Now, you know what's sad about these people? Is they had spiritual leaders, did they not? They had the scribes. They had the Pharisees. They had the priests. They had the Levites. They had a whole infrastructure of spiritual helpers who did not help them. They didn't do anything for them. Isn't this tragic? This tells us not only how sad it was for the people, but also how neglectful the spiritual leaders were. And Jesus could tell this. The fact that they criticized him so showed just how out of touch they were with God. And so he says, listen, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. The the, the people out there, they're like sheep without a shepherd. They're like a harvest that needs to be brought in. God needs to bring in workers to this harvest because the spiritual leaders who are out there, the scribes and the Pharisees and the priests and the Levites, they're not going to do it. God, God, there's there's people out there that are supposed to be serving you, but they're not doing it. Lord, bring in your own harvest by sending forth your own workers. Now, in this chapter, Jesus faced a lot of accusations. He was accused of blasphemy. He was accused of low morals for hanging out with publicans and sinners, tax collectors and sinners, right? He was accused of ungodliness, He was accused of being in league with the devil. But none of that stopped him. Instead, he said, listen, 
Look at the people who need a touch from God. Look at the sheep that are scattered. Look at the harvest that needs to be brought in. Let's put our focus on that very work. It's a prayer that we should pray, isn't it? Pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. It's a prayer that we must pray, but I think we can only pray it honestly if we pray it with an ear open to God, an ear that will listen to him if he tells us, hey, you go out into the harvest. I've given you a little harvest at your work, at your school, in your neighborhood. You, you have a harvest. You go out and take care of it. I think we can only pray this if we're willing to go into whatever harvest field the Lord would send us. So let's pray for that exact thing right now. Father, that is our prayer. We recognize you as being the Lord of the harvest. We recognize you as being the great shepherd over your sheep. And tonight we simply ask you would smile upon us, that we would receive your grace, that we would receive your love, and that, Father, you would use us to minister to the sick and hurting sheep of this world and to bring in your harvest. Lord, I pray that you would help us to reflect on wherever you've placed us, Lord, whatever field you've put us in. Lord, at a workplace, at a school, at a, at a neighborhood, at a family, wherever it might be, Lord, we want to put your priorities first. We want to minister to your sick and hurting sheep. And we want to help bring in your harvest. Move upon us to do it, Lord. Thank you for this time in your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.